Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page. Good morning, Christ Community Church. All righty. Um, uh, first of all, real quick, kids who are in the galaxy, you can go ahead and head back there, but there is no youth group today. If you're in Andrew's youth group, you're staying put here with me, but if you're in the galaxy, go right ahead and head that way. And why they do that, I would just encourage you to, to keep praying for the people on um, the prayer list. Um, there will be no more men's Bible study till, till sometime in January. Uh, be praying for Pat Apel. He took another spill and ended up in the hospital. Um, his daughter Mary is uh, taking care of him. Uh, as far as dad, um, it's about the same. He's up walking around on his own, but other than that, um, he's subsisting on an exciting diet of sherbet and orange juice. And uh, so he's just really weak. And so be praying for him. Be praying for mom because she's just exhausted. So, you know, we try to give her breaks and jump in. But she's just, she's, she's tired. And so be praying for all those folks and more on the prayer list. And we're getting into Acts eleven nineteen today through the end of chapter 12. That's where we'll be. So, you got your Bibles with you, your Bible app, whatever you want to do, that's where you want to go. And that includes you folks at home watching our live stream, which is um, growing and growing because of COVID concerns and, and, and so forth, which I understand. But, you know, I know that many of you will choose not to get the vaccine. Um, that's fine. God bless you. But uh, the way we're going to do it here is we will, once we have um, a full number of volunteers, a good number of volunteers who have been fully vaccinated, then we will start to open up the nursery and other children's programs and, and, and so forth. So that'll be coming over the next few months just to keep you informed. All righty. Now, before we get into Acts 11, 19, um, a couple things to put this in context. One of the things that kind of just gets under my skin just a little bit is when Christians describe any kind of opposition, and that's what it is in this country, to religious freedom, to the gospel. We have a tendency to use the word persecution. Um, we do not face persecution in this country, thank the Lord. We just don't. We face opposition, but not persecution. Persecution involves jail time, possible death. That's persecution. Um, now, I know that, that, that governments all over the country do stupid things. I get that. I worked for a Christian legal uh, organization for eight years. Before that, I was a volunteer attorney for them for three years. And so I've worked on these cases. I've seen it. I know it. So I, for, for example, we had a case in San Diego, California. A guy had a weekly Bible study, small group meeting in his house. The city of San Diego came back and said he had to stop. He had to halt his Bible study because he, quote, wasn't zoned for religious services. We sued, we won, 
you face that kind of stupidity that violates either the federal or the state constitution, and you have to do those things, and, and, and it's good that we fight it and we win it and all that kind of stuff, and we typically do win those. But that's opposition, not persecution. If you want to look at persecution, where Christians, where our brothers and sisters in Christ are facing real persecution, look at North Korea. Look at China. Look at Iran. That's where it's dangerous to be a Christian, where you risk your life by just identifying yourself as a Christian. And for example, in China... The Chinese are only allowed to have congregations of 25 or less. Otherwise, it's an illegal congregation and then go to jail for it. If you're a congregation in China of over 25 people, the only minister you're allowed to have is one trained by the Chinese Communist government. How would you like that? And yet, despite the fact that China has said you can't have these kind of churches, These churches exist underground all throughout China to an estimated population of 44 million Christians gathering every Sunday illegally in China. They face persecution. Yesterday, Megan and I were watching, I haven't seen the whole documentary, but there's a documentary out there called Sheep Among Wolves. There's actually two of them, Sheep Among Wolves 1 and Sheep Among Wolves 2. And it focuses on the underground church in Iran. Iran. Now, in the underground church in Iran, the estimate there is around at least a million people. And it's largely run by women. I found this quote from a couple of the women leaders in the underground church. She said, we know that if they get us, meaning the government, they find out, the first thing they will do to us as a woman is publicly rape us. And then they will beat us, torture us, and ultimately kill us. But another one of the believers said, yet this is the decision we have made. We will offer our bodies as sacrifices if necessary. Because I have this thought when I wake up that when I leave that door, I might not come back. That is persecution. That is also someone, these two women, who are radically devoted to Jesus Christ. Amen? Now, keep that in mind as we get into Acts eleven nineteen. Here we go. <clears throat> now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that took place over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. And they spoke the word to no one except Jews. Now, keep a couple things in mind here. One, if you remember, going back to Acts 7, in the beginning of Acts 8, Stephen was a deacon in the early church who was preaching mightily. The Jewish leadership didn't like it, so they killed him. They publicly murdered him. And because of that, the disciples scattered. And Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch is, as my father would say, a fur piece from Jerusalem. Verse 20, but among them were some men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, which we'll talk about in a minute, spoke to the Hellenists, that is Greeks, non-Jews, also proclaiming the Lord Jesus. 
The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number became believers and turned to the Lord. News of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he rejoiced, and he exhorted all of them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast devotion. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were brought to the Lord. So what we see is the persecution of the early church scattered the leadership of the early church, and as a result, the kingdom grew, the church grew. God used the persecution to grow the church. Yet, I want to caution you on this. One of the things I hear, and it's another thing that gets under my skin, every once in a while I'll hear a a, a Christian say, with all good intentions, persecution is what the church needs, it separates the men from the boys, and it's what grows the church. It can grow the church. And yet, in Acts 9.31, it says that when the Apostle Paul was converted and he stopped his persecution of the church and the church had peace, it grew. The church can grow during times of peace or during times of persecution. It all depends, again, on two things. The faithfulness of Christians and the blessing of the Holy Spirit And we only have control over one of those things. But one of these times, if if the church will wake up in this country, what they will find is this. As the prophet Isaiah promised, you cannot stop the word of God, whether in peace or in persecution. Can't be done. Many have tried, all have failed. Verse 25, then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when they found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for an entire year, they met with the church and taught a great many people, and it was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. Before that, they were called the way. Now, why did Paul, why was Paul in Tarsus, and why did Barnabas go get him? Here's why. First, if you remember, because we're about to spend a lot of time with Paul, so you need to get to know him a little bit. The Apostle Paul was born in Tarsus. And until he was probably 13 to 16, he was raised there. He would have gone to the synagogue for training, beginning about the age of five. And then in the afternoon, because his family had money, and they had money, if you were Jewish, And you had Roman citizenship, you had money. And sometime between 13 and 16, after Paul had gotten all this education in the synagogue and also probably had tutors from the University of Tarsus in the afternoon, around that age, they sent him off to Jerusalem where he would spend the next 14 to 17 years studying under what is considered the greatest rabbi of the first century, Gamaliel. Now, understand something. When I went to seminary, I had two part-time jobs in order to pay the rent and eat. If you were studying under a rabbi in the temple in Jerusalem, you did not go to work at the Jerusalem 7-Eleven and then go take a couple hours of classes from your rabbi. You stayed with your rabbi 24-7. 
There are even Jewish writings talking about, kid you not, disciples following their rabbi to the bathroom to see the right and holy way to do it. They took it that seriously. Now, to do that, what do you have to have? Because the rabbi's not feeding you. What do you have to have? Money. Paul had, Paul's family had money. So Paul has this training. He's a rabbi himself. He's working for the Sanhedrin, which runs all the Jewish religion in, in Israel. And when the Christians pop up and, and they go from 120 to thousands overnight, the Jewish leadership says, we've got to put a stop to this. Paul's smart. Paul's zealous. Paul's got, he's independently wealthy. Send him out. So they send Paul out to persecute the church, drag them out of the synagogues, throw them in jail, even kill them. We don't know how many people Paul killed. And on the road to Damascus, Jesus Christ shows up and says, why are you doing this to me? And isn't it interesting that Jesus says, when he's talking about what Saul is doing to the church, he says, why are you doing this to me? Because the church and Jesus Christ are supposed to be like this. He becomes converted. He preaches his first series of sermons in Damascus. It does not go well. They try to kill him. That's the response to his sermon. I've had people walk out on my sermons. I've never had somebody take a shot at me. Yet. Never say never. But when Paul eventually goes to Jerusalem, and he spends a couple years before, if we're putting Galatians and Acts together and figuring out kind of the chronology, Paul, for a couple years, goes off. And we don't know what in the world he was doing. But I think I know. This is a guess. This is just a guess. This is not scripture. This is just this guy's opinion. Take it for what it's worth. I think what Paul was doing was going back through the scriptures and relearning everything through the lens of Jesus Christ. Because that's not what he'd been taught. I think he was relearning everything he had learned. And then he went to Jerusalem and said, I'm here and I'm ready to help. And Peter and the boys go, whoa, 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 Hoss. Last time we saw you, you had a sword and were dragging us off to jail. They said, okay, I'll tell you what, Paul, go home. Go home for a while. Go home to Tarsus, and we'll, we'll send for you later. Don't call us. We'll call you. So Paul goes home. Now, why did they send him home? That's real simple. This is a rich kid. And if they, they're saying, if we're going to believe that this guy's really a Christian, what's the biggest test? Go tell your family. Let's see how they respond. Let's see how you respond to how they respond. I tell people, and I've said this before, when I went off to seminary back in 1998, now, my parents helped me, but they didn't have to pay for my seminary, thank goodness. But let's say that they had sent me off to Texas and they were spending thousands and thousands of dollars a semester so that I could earn the prerequisite degree to be a preacher. And so I go off, I earn my degree, graduate with honors, I go work in ministry, and then after a few years I come home 
I go into the living room, and I say, Mom and Dad, great news. What's that, Pastor? I'm a Buddhist now. How do you think they'd feel? I know what my dad's response would be. Oh, we're going to have to talk, boy. They sent Paul home to test his mettle to see if he was really a Christian. And apparently he passed. And Barnabas goes and gets him because Barnabas knows. Barnabas knows that no one among the disciples is as well-educated as Paul. No one among the disciples is as zealous as Paul. And Barnabas goes, I want this guy by my side. This guy knows his Bible back and forth, speaks several languages. He knows how to talk to these people in Antioch. I want him. And so they went and got him. Now, in Antioch, this becomes the base, the home base, for Paul and Barnabas to go evangelize the Roman world. And you need to understand something. Antioch, I know, because many of you have been to Israel. And there's a tendency, because you go and you just see these few ruins, that's all that's left, and you tend to think that this is just some podunk ancient town. Antioch, scholars estimate that Antioch was between 500 and 600,000 people. Now, just to put that in context, that is the urban center of Cleveland and Cincinnati combined. It's a big place. It's a big place, and it's largely pagan. Less than 7% of the population were Jewish. 93, 94% of them worshipped other gods. They even still in Antioch at that time worshipped Baal. Now, if you know your Old Testament, you know that the Canaanites sacrificed babies to Baal. So, on the one hand, it was tough ground. But on the other hand, because Antioch was what's called a free city, and they didn't have to answer to Rome as long as they paid their taxes, they had religious toleration. So, it became a good place for Paul and Barnabas to launch their missions. Verse 27. At that same time, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine over all the world. And this took place during the reign of Claudius. Claudius is the fourth Roman emperor, ruling the entire known world, ruling everything basically from England to India. That's a big stretch of land, including North Africa and all that. That was the Roman Empire. Now, this has nothing to do with anything, and typically I, don't, I try to avoid this kind of stuff to keep you awake. But I do like this. Historians have proven that, in fact, there was a famine between 45 and 48 A.D., and Claudius reigned from 41 to 54. What does that matter? It once again means you can trust your Bibles, folks. Luke knew what he was talking about. He investigated carefully. Verse 29. The disciples determined that according to their ability, each would send relief to the believers living in Judea. Now, notice that. Notice that. You're going to see this pattern over and over and over again. The Bible teaches that for each and every one of us, our primary um, priority is to care for our families. After that, it's our church family. After that, it's everyone else. And you're going to see that again and again. 
They sent excess food, like wheat and stuff that could be stored, to their fellow believers. This they did, sending it to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. About that time, King Herod, this is not the same Herod who tried to kill baby Jesus. This is his grandbaby he's named after him, Herod Agrippa. About that time, King Herod laid violent hands upon some who belonged to the church. He had James, the brother of John, killed with the sword. That means they took off a little off top, if you know what I mean. Now, notice that. James, the brother of John. Not James, the brother of Jesus. James, the brother of John. Now, why is that significant? Think about it. Who were the closest to Jesus among the disciples? Peter, John, and his brother, James. Three closest disciples to Jesus Christ. After he saw that it pleased the Jews, and by that he means the Jewish leadership, not all Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the festival of the unleavened bread. When he had seized him, he put him in prison and handed him over to four squads of soldiers, that's 16 soldiers, to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. While Peter was kept in prison, the church prayed fervently to God for him. Why does Herod Agrippa, King Herod the Great's grandson, put 16 guards to guard one middle-aged fisherman? As Matt Chandler says, what's going on here? He's a middle-aged fisherman, not Jason Bourne. Here's why. If you'll remember back, Acts 3 and so forth, do you remember what happened the first time they put Peter in prison? They lock him up. They say, we'll deal with you tomorrow. The Jewish leadership shows up, says, okay, bring us Peter out of the jail and we'll get this going. You go, um, he's not in the jail. Where is he? He's preaching in the temple. And they're like, how did that happen? They're like, <laughs> and Herod Agrippa's like, uh, 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 I ain't getting punked that way. Nope, 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 nope. Sixteen of you. Watch him like a hawk or else. Now, why is Herod Agrippa doing this? What does he care about the Jewish leadership and how they feel about him? How it pleases them. Why does he care? Herod the Great didn't care. Everybody knew about Herod Agrippa's grandpa. If, if you were in the Jewish leadership and you were unhappy with him, he'd say, too bad, <coughs> replace him. That's how he did business. But King Herod the Great had a tighter relationship with the Roman Empire than his grandson does. And if you were a king in the Roman Empire... You had one job as far as the Romans were concerned. Keep the peace. And now Herod Agrippa wants the Jewish leadership to be close to him and have his back. And the reason for that is what we just read. There's a famine coming. Famines don't happen overnight. They build. Bad harvest. Next year, bad harvest. Next year, bad harvest. Uh-oh. They'd had a bad harvest or two, and Herod Agrippa was going, oh, I'm going to need some friends. And so he's playing politician, and he's saying, hey, guys, what's on your wish list? 
kill the Christians? You got it. Just help me when the people say, where's food? Because nothing will cause a riot quicker than no food. I mean, goodness sakes, you saw some of the videos, what happened when there's little toilet paper. Could you imagine? Imagine? Like, goodness sakes, if you lived in West Virginia and they were out of Mountain Dew, Think about it. Now, before we move on, one final thing, and then we'll move on about this. I hear this sometimes from Christians. And this is another little gripe. I know this is a bit of a gripe session. I apologize. Not really. Sorry. Anyway, um, here's the deal. I hear every once in a while a well-meaning Christian brother or sister say, the church just needs to go out in the community and do good things, and people will accept us and accept Jesus Christ. Okay, I am all for going out in the community and doing good things. Not against that. But if you think that's going to win you all this favor and a hearing for the gospel, I want what you're drinking. Because you need to understand something. For example... How many of you know about the, a group called the Nation of Islam? Anybody? Led by Louis Farrakhan? Okay. It's Malcolm X was a part of it for a while, but he, he turned his back on it. The Nation of Islam, what they teach their followers is good stuff. They teach, and it's, it's an exclusively African-American organization, and they teach that you should abstain from sex until marriage. You should be faithful to your wife. You should avoid all addictive substances. No member of the Nation of Islam smokes, drinks, does drugs. They don't do it. They encourage entrepreneurship, home ownership, to be a good and faithful father. They teach good things. So why is it that you cannot find a single media outlet saying good things about the Nation of Islam? because they're rabidly anti-Semitic. Louis Farrakhan is on record saying he hopes Israel's blown off the map and every Jew with it. You're saying, what does that have to do with Christianity, Matt? And we go out and do good things. We're not anti-Semitic. We're not racist. We're not prejudiced. We don't want anything to do. Folks, the, one of the greatest sins you can commit in our culture is exclusivity, to say there's only one way to God. To say that there's only one way to God. Despite the fact that Jesus said it, they don't want to hear it. We can do all the good deeds we want, but if you're out there and you're convinced, as long as you believe something, as long as you're a good person, they're going to throw up a wall against you, and you need to keep that in mind. Verse 6. The very night before Herod was going to bring him out, that would be for public execution, Peter, bound with two chains, was sleeping between two soldiers while guards in front of the door were keeping watch over the prison. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He tapped Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his wrists. The angel said to him, Fasten your belt, put on your sandals. He did so. Then he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Now why would he wrap his cloak around himself? Because once he hits the streets, he doesn't want to be recognized. Peter went out and followed him. He did not realize that what was happening with the angel's help was real. He thought he was seeing a vision. He thinks he's asleep. 
He thinks this is a real vivid dream. After they had passed the first and the second guard, they came before the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went outside and walked along a lane. When suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hands of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Okay, now, you can't explain this away. The guards were not sleeping. There's no indication that the guards were sleeping. This is completely a miracle. For some reason, they don't see the chains fall off. They don't see Peter. They don't see the angel. They don't see anything. And all of a sudden, Peter's out on the streets, free. Now, this is not about Peter. It's not just because Peter was so special, God was not going to allow anything to happen to him. You know how I know that? Peter does not die in hospice care at 105. Peter dies crucified upside down on a cross. Peter and Paul both go to the church. When Nero starts to persecute the church in Rome, they go to be with the church. Paul's beheaded. Peter is crucified upside down. It's not because Peter's so special. Why did God do this? Well, think with me for a second. Think with me. What's happened? James, one of the closest disciples to Jesus Christ, has been beheaded. Stephen was publicly murdered. If you're a member of the early church, you're getting a little nervous. Where is God? And now they've arrested Peter? You know what God's saying by getting Peter out of jail? Oh, I'm still here. And I'm still in control. It's not about Peter. It's about God sending a message. Verse 12. As soon as he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many had gathered and were praying. This is John Mark. You better know him as the writer of something called the gospel according to Mark. This is that guy and his mom. Now, it's unusual for a Jewish woman to own a house by herself. Typically, when a Jewish woman died, it reverted to another male heir, and the male heir may let her stay there or not. But she owns this house. And there's only one way women got away with that in Jerusalem in the first century. She had money. She had money. 13, when he knocked at the outer gate, a maid named Rhoda came to answer. So he, she's got a paid maid. And believe it or not, in ancient Israel, if you were wealthy enough to have a maid, do you know what her primary duty was? It wasn't to dust. It wasn't to clean. It was to answer the door. The woman of the house never answered the door in a first century Israeli home. Why? Because the rabbis taught that if they open the door and it's a man, it looks bad. It looks like maybe some hanky-panky's going on. We don't want that. We want to keep the peace. So if you can afford a maid, have the maid answer the door. And that's what's going on here. So Rhoda comes to answer, and on recognizing Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that instead of opening the gate, she ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the gate. And I love this next part. 
If you think it's just a church today that are full of boneheads, wait and see. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she insisted that it was so. They said, it is his angel. That's his way of saying maybe it's an angel from God about Peter or maybe it's his spirit or something like that. You know. Meanwhile, Peter continues knocking. When they opened the gate, they saw him and were amazed. Can you picture this? A group of Christians are together praying for Peter. Peter knocks on the door, says it's Peter. The person who's supposed to open the door runs in and says it's Peter. They say, no, it's not. They say, well, who is it? I don't know. Maybe it's this person. Maybe it's this. Maybe it's that. Well, maybe it's this. Finally, somebody gets the wherewithal to go settle the dispute by answering the door. Before I came here, I've been in elders' meetings like that. Anyway. So, Peter has been freed, and he motioned to them with his hand to be silent. And he described for them how the Lord had brought him out of prison, and he added, tell this to James and the believers. Then he left and went to another place. In other words, he went to hiding. And when morning came, there was no small commotion among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. When Herod had searched for him and could not find him, he examined the guards and ordered them to be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. So they came to him in a body, and after winning over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for a reconciliation because their country depended on king's country for food. Again, why are they desperate to meet with Herod? They rely on food. What's coming? A famine's coming. And the kings control the food supply. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat on the platform, and delivered a public address to them. The people kept shouting, the voice of a god and not of a mortal. And immediately, because he had not given the glory to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. Someone calls you a god, do not follow the advice of the Ghostbusters, say no, and give glory to God immediately. But the word of God continued to advance and gain adherence. And then after completing their mission, Barnabas and Saul returned to Jerusalem and brought with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now, we know Herod Agrippa died in 44 AD. Now we know how. First lesson there. As Paul writes in Romans 13, even when it comes to persecution or in our country opposition, Yes, we have a court system that we should use, and it's a nonviolent system. Thank God we have it. But ultimately, no matter how evil a person is and how they treat the church, leave vengeance to the Lord. Leave the vengeance to the Lord. He took care of Herod Agrippa. He took care of Nero. He took care of Stalin. He took care of Mussolini. Leave that to the Lord. The early church faced real persecution, thrown in jail. Poor Paul. As we're going to see as we work through this, Paul is in and out of jail for the rest of his life. If it was today, he'd have more tattoos than you could count. But we don't face that here. But it does happen. Just because we don't see it immediately in front of us, it does happen. It happens to our brothers and sisters around the world. And what I would urge you to do is pray for them. 
Put it on your prayer list to pray for those Christian brothers and sisters around the world, in North Korea, Iran, China, etc. Pray for them. They face real persecution. Real persecution. Here, we don't face that, and yet, and here's another gripe, add it to the list, we have the freedom to share the gospel with our neighbors, our family, our friends, our co-workers in an appropriate way. But according to Barner Research, we're not doing it. 50% of conservative Bible-believing Christians say they have not shared their faith with anyone in at least a year. And we have this freedom. In China, they're sharing the message of Jesus Christ in whispers. In Iran, they're sharing the Jesus Christ in hushed tones behind closed doors. We can shout it from the rooftops if we want to, and we're not doing it. They risk their lives. We risk getting blocked on Facebook. Who cares? Who cares? We have to trust in the word of the Lord. Well, Matt, I don't know how to answer these questions. Just tell them I don't know. I'll find out. In the meantime, just share the word of God. The Bible's very clear. The word of God always has power. It cannot be stopped. We have to be willing to share the message of the grace of Jesus Christ with anyone whenever a chance arises. You don't need to be weird about it. You don't need to be creepy about it. Just be straightforward about it. When I was studying for this, I read this. On Palm Sunday... April 9th, 2017, 49 people were killed in two ISIS attacks on churches in Egypt. Michael Nabil Ragib, the father of a three-year-old, had been married for more than four years, and a deacon in St. George Church in Tanta was one of them. His widow, Sarah, said, that when they walked into church, because he was a deacon of the church, he typically sat up front, close to the pulpit. And she usually, along with their three-year-old, sat with him. When they walked into the church, he said he had an uneasy feeling, and he turned to his wife and said, you guys sit back here. She said, why? He said, I don't know, but you guys sit in the back. A bomb was planted under the pulpit by ISIS. Killed, wiped out, killed the preacher, killed the deacons, the elders, wiped out the first few rows of that church. When Sarah, his widow, was interviewed, she said, I loved him so much. But she said, God has given me comfort and peace and great grace in my heart 
because I see my husband's death as a sacrificed sacrifice for Christ. She was asked why. She said, after that attack, ISIS has not been able to recruit a single person in this area. But after that attack, we've converted more Christians than we can count. A bomb killing dozens planted by someone with hate in their heart caused a revival in that area. It shouldn't take that kind of tragedy for us to stand up and share the word of God and pray for a similar revival. All it should take is to look in the mirror and realize that the divine Son of God, the Lord of the universe, stepped off his throne, took on a human body, taught us how to live, lived a perfect sinless life, went to the cross to pay the penalty for each of our sins, for anyone who would place their faith in him, and promised to return. That's all it should take. Look in the mirror and tell yourself this truth, and I believe this to be true as much as it's true as I'm standing here. As you look in that mirror, you understand that if you were the only person who had ever sinned, he would have done it just for you. And that's all it should take. We have the freedom. We have the word. We don't have excuses. Let's pray. Father God, forgive us all taking your grace too lightly. Read these stories about your church, your first church, where your faithful followers were imprisoned and murdered, and yet they continued to preach and teach and disciple and feed fellow believers in need. Your church here has no excuse. We, you have blessed us with great freedom. May we not take that for granted. May we be reminded of the need for your grace every single day. May we honor you as king and follow you closely to expand your kingdom for your honor and your glory. And it is in your name we pray. Amen. God bless you. God goes with you. You're going to be stuck with me probably for a few weeks till the old grumpy preacher gets up and is back up here. But be praying that he will be and we'll be soon. God bless you. God goes with you. See you. Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page.